going? Well, I'm glad to be here tonight. Um, like Jason said, um, newly ordained, so we're not exactly bringing um, the big guns tonight. Um, if you have a Bible, I'm going to be reading from Second uh, Corinthians chapter five. My wife's in the back too, Melissa. This is her first RUF, so when we start in the fall, that won't be her first now. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 13 through 21. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. And we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, as we gather to hear your word, I pray that you would touch my unclean lips and speak, speak your word accurately and faithfully for your glory. Amen. Alright, so tonight I want to look at how the gospel meets the two great commandments. Uh, the two great commandments of being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, but first I want to do a little bit of context. We're going to do context one and context two. And uh, context one is sort of just broad, um, overarching uh, theme of the Bible, um, our relationship with God. Um, and, and most of you, I'm sure, have heard this almost ad nauseum, this whole, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And shortly thereafter, created man, male and female, after his own image. And with the whole of creation, he said, this is very good. So God creates... Um, creation, uh, man and female, and he puts them in the garden and says, you guys do whatever you want here. Um, you can do whatever, except eat from that tree right over there. And the day that you eat that, you will die. Um, as you know, um, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, and from that point, from there on, every human being who was born has been tainted with sin. And we're born with a certain animosity towards God. Um, so that's sort of we start there. We see this estrangement, and, um, and we see that 
we all like to sin now, naturally. We're good at it. We run to it, um, apart from God's grace. Uh, but God doesn't just leave man um, in his sin. He says things of hope to people like Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. He says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Um, but then he also says things like, love me with all that you are, and love your neighbor. Um, and one thing that we see is just, we're not really capable of doing that in and of ourselves. And God reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And just like the uh, catechism that we read earlier, this is scary that by our very works we deserve more and more condemnation every single day. In spite of who we are, in spite of our inability, God still gives us these two commands. Love me. Love your neighbor. And so God also promises that in spite of this broken world, in spite of the fact that we're broken, and when we broke, the world around us broke, He says, one day I will create a new heavens, a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. And so God promises that He will fix this broken world. He promises that He will fix these broken people. Us. Alright. So background number two is Paul and the Corinthians and their sort of rocky relationship. Um, Paul and the Corinthians have slightly different um, values. They see the world through different lenses. The Corinthians like um, worldly power and money and success. And Paul comes, you know, with fear and trembling. And he's not as sophisticated as, you know, the the public speakers and the authorities of his day. And he's not as um, polished. And the Corinthians really resent him for this. They resent him for his coming in weakness. Um, But Paul doesn't turn away. And all their resentment and all their, um, I guess, disdain for them, he continues to love them. And he says... For the love of Christ compels us. He says, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. And, and just to clarify, when he says us, he's really talking about himself, other ministers of the gospel. And you, he's talking to the Corinthians. So if, we, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. But if we're in our right mind, it's for you. And so right there you see this sort of, his service to God and his service to man. Um, and so don't think when you hear like, these two great commandments, that this is just something that Jesus said one time. This is a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. Love God, love man. And this coming to reality that we don't do this in and of ourselves. So in spite of all of Paul's opposition, or their opposition to him, he continues to pour into the Corinthians. His love is both for God and for them. And so I want us to look at how the gospel meets the two great commandments. How does this happen? What is Paul's sort of understanding of this? And it's rooted in, one, Paul has been reconciled to God. And two, his reconciliation to God has changed the way that he sees everybody else. So he's been reconciled to God. It changes the way he sees everybody else. And then I want to just afterwards talk a little bit about how that affects us. It's important, as we talk about reconciliation, that we carry with it this idea of on behalf of or for. 
Um, reconciliation comes with the idea of on behalf of. And sort of a trite illustration, uh, a good friend of mine, you know, Justin Jones, called me this week, out of work, and he says, hey man, are you up for a little fun? I was like, sure, what's up? And uh, we, we graduated Beeson this past December. He's since moved to Mississippi. He moved a little bit beforehand. And he said, my cable provider keeps billing me. They keep billing me. And I keep calling them and calling them and calling them saying, hey, I've moved. And they've acknowledged it three times. Oh, yeah, sorry, we're, over, we're overcharging you. Uh, we'll take care of it. I said, well, they're not, taking, they're not taking care of it. And now I've got creditors calling me about this bill, and I've moved away from it. So I was like, all right. So I thought long and hard about how, he said, why don't you call them for me? And I was like, okay. So I thought about the exact wording that I would use, because I'm not entirely sure that what I did was legal. Um, So I called, and um, I got the voicemail of uh, Landis, and tried to sound stern. This is Joe Dennis, I'm calling on behalf of uh, Mr. Justin Jones. And apparently, um, your company is in error. You have acknowledged, according to our records, three times that you've overcharged him, and yet you continue to do nothing about it. You continue to do nothing about it. And um, now, creditors are harassing Mr. Jones. And right now, I'm calling you on my lunch break, but next time, I might be calling you on the clock. Uh, I didn't tell them which clock I would be calling them from. (laughs) But I told them that next time, I might be calling them on the clock. And... um, you know, I said, I want you to call and apologize to Mr. Jones and take care of this right away. Well, a little bit later, um, my friend Justin calls me. He goes, man, I don't know what you said, but they just called, and they apologized, and they said they're going to take care of everything. So it's like, great. Now, the, the illustration breaks down, obviously, in many levels. But for Paul, the idea of reconciliation cannot take place without this idea of on behalf of. Uh, and that's crucial to our understanding of this text and our understanding of the gospel and the Bible. Um, this is on behalf of. And so why is this question of on behalf of so important? Well, let's jump back to context number one. We've estranged ourselves from God. We're broken. We're sinful. We're at odds with God, at war with God. Ever since Adam threw that first blow in the garden, we have been at war. This is, um, you know, Paul says here that Christ died that we might not live for ourselves anymore, but for Him who died for us. And, and he says this another way, this, what it means to live for ourselves. In Romans 8, he says, For mind that, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so for reconciliation to take place for Paul and God, or for us and God, there has to be this idea of on behalf of, because we're so sinful, at odds with God. Um, Enemies. I don't know, um, I suspect that most of you have uh, similar affections for uh, Michael Vick and his sort of, you know, bad bad, news dog kennel or whatever it was. I think the reason that so many people get upset with the whole, you know, dog fighting is because you're looking at, you know, innocent dogs getting thrown into this terrible sort of situation. And I don't want you to think about Christ coming into the world 
to die for us, to rescue us. Imagine, say, this house on fire, right? And you got all these innocent little puppies. Bad news, dog, kennel, whatever. Don't think of Jesus coming in, you know, heroically and scooping up all these innocent little puppies and then running out, you know. You know, Fox News headline, you know, man saves household, you know, puppies. Um, We're not innocent. We're not innocent. The idea really is Jesus runs into this building and doesn't find little puppies, you know, help. He finds demented people like us with flamethrowers, really. And we've, we've lit the house on fire. And we see Jesus and we set our sights on him. That's really what it means when, when Jesus comes in. He's not saving innocent people. He's saving people who hate him. Who started the mess that they're in and don't want to be saved. Um, that's, that's what Paul's really talking about here when he talks about he came to die for those who are living for themselves. This wartime language is essential to our understanding of who we are and who God is. Living for self is rebellion against God. So, Jesus comes to save us and we kill him. We hate him. We hate the one who comes to save us. And it looks at first like we win. This hostility can continue. And yet, for a lot of us, and for a lot of Christians, we start to find ourselves wrestling with the fact that we're not so much wanting to live for ourselves anymore. And we're not at odds so much with God and the gospel. Find ourselves, the one that we hated is now really our family. And that's what we're talking about when when Paul talks about reconciliation, this being brought back to God. We were enemies, and God restored us. We didn't go looking for Him, saying, please forgive us. That's not our nature. You guys looked at this probably a couple weeks ago in Ephesians 2, where by nature we're children of wrath. We don't set our affections on God. So because of Christ coming to love the unlovable, Paul finds himself reconciled to God. We find ourselves reconciled to God. And that's really what Christianity is, is a celebration of us not getting our way, but God getting His way. That's the Gospel. Well, look at verse 16, because it strikes me, this change, Jesus raised from the dead for us. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. This real, this turn, and then he talks about, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but this, we've been reconciled to God, now we don't look at each other according to the flesh. And again, we're seeing this first and second commandment are inseparable, both in their command, but also when God redeems them, and redeems us uh, in the way that we see them. Um, as we've seen in and of ourselves, we can't do either. And I think the move that, that Paul's making here is when we find ourselves reconciled to God, it means that we've seen ourselves for who we are. Enemies. Sinful. Haters of God. And he, he loves us. And He redeems us. And we see that as rotten as we are, He still loves us. And that's, that's humbling. It's very humbling to see who we are. And then, it changes the way that we see others. Because we're all really in the same boat. Children of Adam. Children of Eve, haters of God, and yet redeemed. 
And when you start to see each other as we really are and see we're on the same playing field, it changes the way that we see one another. It enables us to love one another. It frees us to love one another. Not because we've figured anything out, but because God has been gracious to us. And God has loved us. And He's reconciled us to Himself. And so the second commandment always flows out of the first. There's no, I love people but not God. It's, it's always got to be, love God, love your neighbor. God reconciles you to Himself and enables you to love Him. It changes the way I see you. And now I can love you. Though, like we've you know, read in the confession, our hearts are still prone to rebel. We're still prone to wander. So, I want to ask this question. What does it mean to know according to the flesh? Know according to the flesh. We don't talk like this unless we're at RUF, or unless we're in Sunday school or church. So, um, see, if, see if this makes sense. I think to, to know someone according to the flesh is really to measure someone according to the values that the world around us sets. To know someone according to the flesh is to measure them according to the standard that the world around us sets. And, and what I mean by that is if the world around you tells you that someone is powerful, affluent, you should respect them. If that's the reason that you respect them, that's wrong. Likewise, if the world tells you this person's weak, they have nothing to offer, they should be marginalized. If you look down on them for that reason, that too is sin. This is um, what God's talking, what Paul's talking about when we don't, we no longer know anyone according to the flesh. We understand that we are bankrupt in and of ourselves before our Maker. We're on equal footing. Well, next, Paul says something that's just a little confusing to me. Um, that he once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Um, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you remember, Paul was once, you know, evil Saul, you know, killing Christians everywhere he went. Um, and when you think of, we don't think about this. If you're used to the gospel, if you've lived in a church setting for a while, the idea of the Messiah crucified doesn't really strike you as weakness. We wear crosses on our, our necks and we put them in our churches. We don't think of that as weakness anymore. But that was terribly offensive to Paul. We've got this weak Messiah who doesn't come in power. He's killed. He's weak. Jesus is weak. He's not able to do what he says he can do. And so Paul's problem with Jesus is that he looked weak. And ironically enough, this is now the same problem that the Corinthians have with Paul. Paul, you look weak. You're not polished. You kind of stutter when you talk. You don't look like what the world says success is. You don't look like what the world tells us we should listen to. They confuse weakness with impotence. Now, I sort of wonder, um, we've got a lot of girls and not so many guys, but are there any Smashing Pumpkins fans in here? Anybody listen to Smashing Pumpkins? Kind of, maybe. Um, I love pumpkins. And um, back in July, they kind of came out with another album. It was kind of good to have them back. Um, they don't, they don't, like, sort of lost that angst they had, you know, in the mid-90s. And actually, as much as Billy Corgan, at least in 95, hated God, it really helps me to understand the gospel a whole lot more. 
In fact, I never felt really liberated to enjoy the pumpkins until I became a Christian myself. It was kind of too dark before then. Um, and, and Billy Corgan has this one song he sings. He says, the world is a vampire. You know, ding, 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 ding. It's, and the idea is the world is, is, is wicked. It's evil. You know, secret destroyers. You know, they're just sucking the blood out of each other. We're wicked. We hate each other. Um, and then he sort of even addresses Jesus at the end, you know, and he says, I still believe that I cannot be saved. I still believe that I cannot be saved. Um, and another song he says that uh, God is empty, just like me. And I think Billy Corgan and Paul really aren't that different in the way that they see a weak Messiah. And Jesus, you're not able to do what you say you can do. You're weak. You're not who you say you are. I still believe that I cannot be saved. I still believe that I cannot be saved. And yet Paul finds himself reconciled to God through this weak Messiah, the one he saw according to the flesh earlier. God is not impotent, but he's powerful. And his plan of redeeming the world, not just people, but this broken world, it's coming. And all the terrible things that we see, earthquakes and genocide and rape, and murder, and, and molestation, and everything is, is going to come to an end. And God is re- reconciling the world to himself. He's redeeming the world. And you catch glimpses of that everywhere the gospel goes. Everywhere the gospel goes. God has not left us to our own devices. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. As I said, when we see who we are before God, it humbles us. It changes the way that we see one another. even liberates us to share this message of reconciliation, to talk about what it means to be one with God again instead of at odds with Him. The gospel is powerful even though it's cloaked in weakness. It's cloaked in a Messiah dying on the cross. It's cloaked on, you know, a humble apostle who gets people resent. And yet lives are changed and God is bringing people back to Himself and people who hate God find themselves believing Jesus is who he says he is. He can do what he says he can do. God acts for us, enabling us to respond in faith. So we see, we can't love God and not love our neighbor. We can't love our neighbor and not love God. It's, it's all intertwined and it's rooted in both seeing who we are. I can't hold anything over you or you because we're the same. So let me ask, how does this affect us? You know, we, we've heard the gospel. We know, yes, I'm a sinner. Jesus loves me. Uh, great. What is your boast? What is, what is your hope? Oh, it's Jesus. It's the gospel. But if you're like me, it's really not that easy a lot of times as far as what do I find myself boasting in? What do I find myself banking in? And if it's anything other than Jesus, it always leaves room for me to look down on somebody else. And you pride yourself in your education or the school that you go to or your sorority or fraternity 
you know. And, and how do you make the grade? How do you make the cut to get into one of these? And what about skin color? Is it easy to look down on somebody for their skin color? How much money they have or don't have? For me, one of the most convicting places in the world is a gas station. Because you're sort of just out in your car. You know, it's amazing how we don't really pass people unlike us, you know. Most of you, you know, go to the same school, you come here. But at a gas station, or Walmart, you really sort of bump into people that aren't like you. And, and for me, if I hear somebody with a ridiculous accent, automatically I'm pegged, you know, I've got more education than this person. Um, it's, it's, I find that there's a lot of things that are easy to boast in, easy for me to look down on other people, and I pray that God would use those times more and more to show me I'm just a sinner like they are. I'm naturally at odds with God. And I, my hope is that Jesus came to reconcile me to God. He's done it for me. He's done everything for me. And that is liberating to see other people in new light. Power in the world's eye and power in the gospel's eye are radically at, at odds with one another. And this is something I think that we'll all have to struggle with the rest of our lives. Our hope is the gospel. Our hope is that God loves the unlovable. Because we are unlovable. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. For sending your son Jesus to die. To be raised for our transgressions. And pray that we would rejoice in Him, in Him alone. Amen.